This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped more than 40 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about perspective and point of views in television writing. From unreliable narrators to POV on the page, we are going to see the world through your character's eyes. All right, welcome back to our Paper Scraps segment. And as we promised, we have a big announcement for you all. Drum rolling. Drum roll. Uh, we are announcing Paper Tease, the Paper Team Teaser Writing Competition. You might be familiar with the Script Notes three-page challenge, and this is kind of our twist on that. You're submitting your teaser or cold open to your pilot script up to eight pages, and it's absolutely free to enter. And you can send your submissions right now if you go online to paperteam.co slash teaser. And essentially, the idea was to go back to why we started this podcast in the first place. Paper Team and TV Calling have always been educational resources and means to help other writers. And so Paper Tees seemed like the natural extension of that offering feedback to some of our listeners and in the process, learn and improve our craft. This is free to enter. It can be a teaser or cold open of any original TV pilot script that you've written, any format, any genre. Just shoot us over a PDF only, no final draft files. You can put a cover page on. That doesn't count towards the page number. If you're a writing team, just put one name in the submission. We're probably going to have like a submission form set up on the website for you. And then you can just put both your names on the cover page. So be aware that your teaser may be posted in the show notes for other people to read. But of course, you obviously retain all of the rights. We're not optioning it. We're not buying it off of you, anything like that. We're just going to be reading it and analyzing it on air if we choose that. In fact, we encourage and recommend you probably protect your work before submitting it. Go to the WGA registration or the U.S. Copyright Office if you're concerned about that. And those links, again, will be posted on the paperteam.co teaser page as well as all the full rules, terms, and conditions on that website. Yeah, and we're aiming to do this once every other week during our Paper Scraps segment. We will read probably two teasers. We may not read them verbatim. We may just do a little summary and then go over our kind of notes and thoughts on that. But here's the exciting part. We have prizes. Ooh, and what are those prizes? Well, firstly, you get free feedback from us if we choose to read your teaser on air. So that's helpful and valuable. Hopefully. (laughs) And... Very exciting. We have prizes from Roadmap Writers and our sponsors for the monthly winner. So that would be the best of the, say, four teasers that we read and critiqued on air that month. And maybe some more cool things down the line. So get your teasers ready and send them at paperteam.co slash teaser now. So let's talk about perspective and points of views. And the reason why we're bringing this topic on a podcast is because we got a tweet from Adventure Frequency. An adventure frequency said, we wonder the thoughts of Paper Team on using the same secondary peripheral characters as narrators, inserting them in the story here and there, like Big Little Lies did. 
And so we decided to do a whole episode just about POV and perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the first thing we tend to do is define what we're talking about. So for us, POV and perspective is, is functionally the same thing. We're going to use the terms interchangeably. POV is perhaps a more technical specific term, like a POV shot to dictate that we're literally seeing through a character's eyes or a particular camera angle. But it can also be used in the same sense as perspective, which is this broader narrative or literary term that's used in other things too, like novel writing and plays and all forms of storytelling. From a narrative level, using perspective in your story is really to put your audience in the shoes of a specific character or protagonist. Right. It's about kind of empathizing with them and understanding their perspective, but also their emotional perspective and perception of events. It's kind of the subjectivity of their experience in its entirety. And on that point, for television, perspective and POVs are often used as a way to, as we just said, explore characters. Lost is a classic example of those centric episodes where they rotated between characters' POVs. One episode would be about Jack, complete with flashbacks, and then the next would be about Kate and so forth. So on a character level, they could contrast who they are on the island with who they were in their past lives. And on a story level, they could also exposit things about their past and their future through flash forwards. And another recent example of that centric episode is the fourth season of Arrested Development. It was less well-received specifically because the show was originally the antithesis of Lost. It was essentially an ensemble show with characters interacting together and a classic ABC story structure. And the fourth season upended that with that Rashomon-style narrative, with each episode centered entirely on a different character, plus telling the story out of linear order. So it was kind of very confusing for a lot of people. And from a screenwriting perspective, there is this whole conversation to be had about whose POV you should be writing from. We'll explore versions of those answers in this episode. But really, the key thing here to preface is that you should be aware of what perspective and POV you are writing your story from. Uh, an example would be a scene featuring two characters, with one of them really wanting out of the scene, and the other really wanting into the scene. There's a power struggle in that dynamic, but from whose POV are you telling the scene? So you can check out our Analyzing Great TV Scenes episode, that's PT77, for more on that, but in this episode we're going to really focus on the perspective of television. <laughs> So let's talk about using point of view as a narrative device. Now, the first thing that I want to kind of clarify is this version of narrative point of view or an unspoken point of view. The idea is that we are only seeing certain events on the screen because our POV characters, our main characters are there. Now, this is not overt as a character literally voiceovering about things or seeing a shot through their eyes, but it's a more subtle version of telling a story through a character's point of view. Once a point of view character leaves a room, the scene should theoretically end or perhaps follow them out of that room. It wouldn't make sense for us to stay with these two random side characters and hear them talk in most cases. In the same way, it might not make sense to cut to the private life of a random character in town unless we're actually following their story in a meaningful way through the episode. So the use or restriction of point of view should be used as a tool. For example, only ever seeing scenes and story from the perspective of our lead character when she is in the scene and never any other time could help lead to a claustrophobic and paranoid atmosphere in a thriller or a horror story where perhaps the townsfolk and the people around her could secretly be monsters or plotting to kill her. So uh, it helps if we only know what she knows and we share her paranoia about that. And this goes back to the idea that you want to put the audience in that person's shoes, right? That is why you're choosing that person's perspective and point of view to frame the story. 
Absolutely. Uh, another example is we could deliberately choose to show the scenes through a villain's point of view to build the suspense and establish those stakes and tension while our heroes are off on their story trying to find a way to stop him. Silence of the Lambs does this really well by cutting away to Buffalo Bill and his kind of scary weirdness, especially at the end in that classic scene where we see him actually looking for Clarice through the night vision goggles with the gun. You know, it purposefully denies the audience our hero's point of view so that we're worried for her and we think that he might find her and kill her at any second. And on the flip side, you also have a misleading objective POV in that movie when the FBI raids Buffalo Bill's house while we intercut with his conversation with Clarice. It turns out that they raided the wrong place. Obviously, the editing is there initially to give the idea that the FBI is going to raid the correct house, but they're leading us down the wrong path. They're playing with the audience's expectations there and even kind of relying on you thinking, oh, well, this is the FBI's perspective. Of course, they found the right place. Like they're tricking you into thinking that they are operating under objectivity when really all POV is subjective. Absolutely. And on that point, we should talk about using POV as a framing device as a whole for your story. Now, obviously, one of the clear examples is having a character as a narrator or having that character use voiceover in that story. An example of that would be a show like Lee, which initially started from the perspective of Leah Michelle's character. There was this high point in the early 2010s where every show would feature some kind of opening and closing voiceover, which honestly added nothing to the table. And as much as I love Grey's Anatomy, and that show did some great TV episodes, it also lost track of why it had a voiceover in the first place. Uh, it is in the title, Grey's Anatomy. It's about Meredith Grey perspective working her way up in the hostel with the VO being an insight into what she is thinking of the environment. In practice, however, it ended up being this gimmick to serve either as some kind of exposition device or using the voiceover to serve the themes on a silver platter. Right. That's such a classic trope of at the end, like, well, you know, the character comes in with a voiceover. I guess at the end of the day, what we all really learned is that we're not here forever and we need to take each other seriously. <laughs> like, well, Yeah. What does that add to the table? In my mind, good voiceover serves both to explore those themes and that story, but also to serve character. Let's look at the most extreme examples of POV in a construct, and that is the Rashomon episode. And a lot of shows like to do that Rashomon episode where they divide an event into multiple people's POV. So Rashomon story is when that same event is recapped by several characters with different stories. We see them successively to understand what actually happened during that event. It's a bit like the concept of unreliable narrator, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it's all the characters who are unreliable narrators, not just the one. And in case you don't know, it's called Rashomon thanks to the 1950 movie by Akira Kurosawa called Rashomon, which used that technique to tell its stories. Hollywood owes a lot to Akira Kurosawa and copying his movies and ideas. Pretty much, yeah, <laughs> including a Tantino. In TV, though, that idea is not much different. Let's say you're doing a legal show and a murder happens. You could divide each act between each separate witness who will then each give a different testimony based on what they saw, i.e. each act will showcase a different perspective or POV of what happened. And as you can probably guess, those episodes usually do not give the audience the entire objective reality of what happened, only people's subjective perspectives on that truth. Yeah, I mean, if you think about if they just showed the audience what objectively happened, and then we went through and saw all of the characters' perspectives on it, that's that's not interesting. We already know the truth of that. So by withholding that from us, provides an interesting angle onto it. Whereas if you just told the story straight, suddenly it's just a very down the line Oh, cool. This is who killed them. Right. I would say if you're using that former example, it would frustrate the audience tremendously from that 
people's perspective. But the key to a great Rashomon episode, in my mind, is that you have the device not just be used on a story or narrative level, but also on a character level. And an awesome example of that is the Farscape episode, The Ugly Truth. And like most classic Rashomon stories, something bad happens, a ship is destroyed, and then the characters are put on trial to determine who is responsible for that crime. So we see Eren's son's testimony, then Zahn's, then Stark's, then Cardargo, and finally John Crichton's testimony. But what is interesting with this Rashomon episode is that each perspective, both visually and narratively, is truly being told through that character's memory. In other words, you do see those four or five different versions of the same scene, each with subtle changes in the dialogue and the character dynamics. Uh, More importantly, you expose what characters think of one another. Uh, One way that episode does that is by who each character considers to be the leader. So for example, Cardargo sees himself as this magnanimous leader with everyone deferring to his authority and flanking his two sides. Erin's son also sees herself as that leader, but John Crichton splits that responsibility between himself, Erin, and Cardargo. At the end of the episode, we get an actual conclusion on who fired that cannon, but that doesn't really matter since the real truth we've just witnessed is how each character perceives each other. I'm trying to remember that episode. Did they also use like a different visual style and lighting and palette and things like that just to show the different characters' perspective? In some level, yes. Yeah. Uh, visually, they did sort of do the wet pans differently mm. and the angles are a little bit different. Obviously, the ways each actor is playing the character is very different. John Crichton, I think, is played as a coward yeah. in uh, Cardargo's uh, flashback. To the credit of Farscape, Farscape did a lot of those interesting, unique visual flourishes. Absolutely. And I think it's a really common technique to be explored in comedy as well, whether they are outright parodying something like Pulp Fiction or whether they're doing it in their own kind of way. For example, Community's episode, Critical Film Studies, which I think was like a a mashup between Pulp Fiction and My Dinner with Andre (laughs) and uh, The Simpsons, probably my favorite Simpsons episode of all time, 22 short films about Springfield, which was very much a direct homage to Pulp Fiction Mm -hmm. and exploring each little sub characters and and the world their world that we never really see and then seeing the simpson family kind of like interweave their way through all of them it's like it it was interesting because like every episode of the simpsons is through the simpsons pov so suddenly this episode showed what is it like to be the people around the simpsons and exploring that in particular it was exploring the aura borealis at this time of year (laughs) and this time of day in this part of the country right localized entirely within seymour skinner's kitchen beautiful episode (laughs) I did also want to bring up the 2002 TV show Boomtown on NBC, which was entirely built around that Rashomon concept. Each episode featured some kind of crime, and then the episode was divided between different people's stories, whether a detective or a district attorney or a reporter or a paramedic, all with a different perspective on that crime. It only lasted two seasons, but it is one of the most interesting broadcast shows I've seen. And also, it was created by Graham Yost, who went on to do um, little-known shows. I think uh, Justified is one of them. And then he also EP'd on this other uh, show that nobody has heard of called The Americans. Yeah, I don't know what either of those are. No, that's true, though. But so this Rashomon thing is a really clear cut example of seeing story through character POV because it's solely through that point of view. And that is the entirety of the way that the world is filtered through it. But there are different ways to use POV and more subtle and nuanced examples as well, right? Yeah, one example of that would be the unreliable narrator. And so let's talk about what that is. And as the name implies, this is a narrative where the person telling the story is unreliable. So for example, I ask Nick what he did this morning and he tells me he was eating Vegemite. Of course. Of course. Uh, But then we, the audience, see on screen that Nick was actually high-fiving a kangaroo this morning. How did you know? (laughs) 
because you're Australian. <laughs> Now, whether he lied on purpose or Nick has dementia, doesn't really matter here.、Uh, the point is that he is an unreliable narrator because of memory bias. I am personally a big fan of unreliable narrator as a narrative technique, specifically because it subverts one of the key principles of storytelling, and that is that the story being told is an objective story. Where the events are unfolding exactly as the storyteller is telling them. Movies like Fight Club, Election, Charter Island, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari are all great examples of that unreliable narrator. But you should know that these are all self-contained stories, and that is the exact reason why unreliable narrators are much rarer in TV. It is really hard to craft an ongoing narrative around unreliable protagonists because if we cannot trust our main characters, then who are we empathizing and connecting with? It is much harder to sustain an unreliable narrative device over a long period of time.、Uh, in comedy, though, they can use it as more of a comedic device. So Scrubs has voiceover narration for our main character JD, a to establish his POV, also to give us some insight into his emotional character journey, but also as a tool for comedy. So JD can often set up the. World or the situation or a relationship in one way through the voiceover, and then we find out pretty quickly what the reality is. For example, if he's like, "Dr. Cox is such a great guy. I think he's really starting to come around to liking me," and then he turns around the corner and Dr. Cox is like, "Newbie, I never knew I could hate someone so much in my entire life." And that's the kind of thing where they're just kind of playing it as an immediate setup and payoff of one character thinks the world is this way, but it's really a different way. It doesn't have to always be a, the plot that we're being misled about. It could be character relationships and other things too. Right,、so、a little bit like an exclamation point to emphasize. Size, oh, this character doesn't know what they're talking about. Exactly.、Uh, and there are actually a couple recent examples of one-hour TV shows with unreliable narrators in their format. And the first one is the Showtime series The Affair, whose entire framing device features unreliable narrators. The story is about the dynamic of two couples linked through an extramarital affair. The main narrative is about that affair told from the perspective of two characters, at least in the first season,、uh, each with their own biases.、Uh, for example, in the last episode of the first season, someone pulls a gun, and then you see from one character's perspective that person was very animated and waving the gun at people's faces, and in the other person's point of view, that character is much more subdued. So you kind of see the different biases at play. The second TV show is one we would be remiss to not talk about since it prompted the initial tweet, and I'm of course talking about HBO's Big Little Lies. And the framing device of Big Little Lies is pretty straightforward: a murder happens, people are interviewed by a detective, and most of what we see on screen is a retelling of those events. However, what is unique about the show is that, at least on paper, a lot of those events are retellings from secondary peripheral characters, parents from the school who are overhearing our protagonists and are then gossip. About it to the detective, and as Adventure Frequency mentioned in their tweet, these characters were then inserted into the story here and there. For example, X person is sitting a couple tables away from Nicole Kidman and overheard her talking with her husband, or they are at a school assembly and see Reese Witherspoon arguing with Adam Scott. But that framing, as I just said, is only on paper. And honestly, I was a bit frustrated by the show specifically because it did not use that framing device on a narrative level. Those parents overhearing things and sharing to the detective are only there as a grace note to highlight the gossiping going around town. There is little to no narrative purpose for it. In fact. I would say that you could remove all those scenes with those parents being interrogated and lose nothing to the show. Now I haven't seen the show, but were those peripheral characters ever utilized in the story, or they just kind of, you know, happened to be there to hear things? 
only in a small amount, really. Right. If, let's say one parent is unhappy with another character, then they would include it as an emphasis to the dynamic at play. But it's not really characters that were part of the narrative because the narrative is about those uh, four women. I see. Um, yeah. But the real focus of the story, like I just said, is about those lead characters. And most of those important scenes are happening in closed doors with their significant others, not out in the open for other people to see, i.e. not for our secondary or tertiary characters to gossip about. And also that investigation I mentioned serves no purpose whatsoever to the story. 95% of the show, spoiler alert, happens before the murder even occurs. And the detective even enters the present narrative in probably the last 10 minutes of the entire show. Now, obviously, I have not seen the second season, but as a reminder, Big Little Lies was always intended as a miniseries, not as an actual show with multiple seasons. And on that basis, I believe there was a little bit of a misstep to have this very unique, interesting framing device of secondary and tertiary characters being the ones sharing what they saw of a protagonist and not doing anything with it. I think that is the great thing about point of view as a device is it allows for these stories to be told subjectively. Not everything stated, seen, or experienced needs to be taken as the absolute truth about the world. So beyond just unreliable narrators or Rashomon-type stories retold through different points of view, subjectivity can be used in as simple a way as characters having certain opinions or beliefs about the world or other characters that may seem plausible given what we know or they know, but that we later find out that that is not the case. Uh, it doesn't have to be as extreme as a character having schizophrenia or paranoid delusions or a split personality like Fight Club or Shutter Island. Perhaps our main character believes that the high school jock who bullies them is a huge jerk and a womanizer, but really we find out later that he's been struggling with his sexuality and is trying to put on a macho front so people don't find out. Not everything you write has to be the truth or exist on only one level. Like life, you know, everything should have those multiple layers of truth and lies and near truths. Perhaps there is no right or wrong or objective way to see someone or something. And two people with differing opinions could be right in their own way within your story. Wow, that's pretty deep. Life advice. <laughs> you know, another example is the perspective of a child and how she sees the world like in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, Scout thinks that Boo Radley is scary or dangerous and everyone gossips about him in town when really he's just a reclusive man who is maybe a little mentally or emotionally impaired, but is actually a really good guy. Basically, trust no one is what you're saying. <laughs> No, I think, I think the point that I'm really trying to make is that it doesn't need to be a big splashy device. It's just everyone in some way has that level of subjectivity and there is no real objective truth to that. So make sure that your writing and your characters and your stories are layered like that and not just, you know, I'm basically God as the writer and I know what happens. So that's exactly how I'm going to present it to the reader or the audience. <laughs> We've looked at different uses of POV on the narrative level, but let's talk about POV on the page itself. It can be really useful to put a sense of the character through which the story is being told into the personality and the voice of the writing on the page. Um, we're always talking about your voice as a writer, but also you can kind of get a little bit of the voice of the character into that too. So if it's an emotional scene or one where the character is afraid or excited or angry, you can try to communicate this with the use of white space and sentence fragments and ellipses and how the reader is going to take that in. Even with the use of some of those kind of unknowables or taking creative or stylistic liberties. For example, if you wrote, the dark figure appears in the doorway. Crap, he's here. That last part gives us an insight into the characters and how the action is unfolding from their perspective. Just be careful of that stuff like she realizes or she feels sad or she thinks about last night. That's not what we're recommending here. 
And on that note, you can use POV shots. And that is obviously a shot where you are literally seeing something through a character's eyes. And POV shots are one of those techniques that writers frequently use in their scripts. It's a great way to put someone quite literally in someone's perspective. If you read scripts from shows like The Good Wife and Six Feet Under, you will often find them across several pages. And I've used them occasionally in my own stories. If anyone's ever seen Peep Show, that's actually a kind of fairly unique British comedy where every scene is literally through the eyes of one of the characters and you're seeing everything from their perspective. So that's kind of POV taken to its extreme using those shots. On that note, I've also seen a lot of people going overboard with POV shots, especially in writers. And I think the reason why they go overboard with it is that they're trying to force feed the perspective or POV to the reader. And like we just discussed, there are other more organic ways of doing it. So to me, POV shots on the page only make sense if what you're trying to convey can only be conveyed literally through that person's viewpoint. So for example, let's say your scene is about someone who's been kidnapped and they're sitting in some kind of cell. Their kidnapper comes back into the cell. The two characters have some kind of interaction and you start building the tension by going into the captive's literal POV, Nick's POV, the door behind the kidnapper. It's wide open. He looks back at his jailer and then at the door again. Can he make a run for it? That's just one example of using an actual POV shot to highlight what the character is either thinking or considering. The pilot of Breaking Bad uses this quite effectively in the scene when Walter White learns he has cancer. All he can focus on is the mustard stain on the doctor's tie. Absolutely. And I think another thing you can do is delve really deeply into what makes your character unique and then how that's reflected in their point of view. You know, not all characters are created equal, contrary to popular opinion. Not all characters are straight, white, cis, neurotypical, able-bodied men in their mid-30s. You know, Like this podcast. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We're not that old. Uh, when characters have something unique or unusual about them, you can use this to your advantage in presenting their POV in the story. For example, in the movie The Quiet Place, we can immediately tell when we're in the POV of the daughter who's deaf because all of the sound cuts out and the audience experiences the world through her eyes or ears, I guess. For characters with poor eyesight, we could see the world is blurry until they find the glasses they dropped. For characters who are germaphobic or have a form of OCD, they probably see the world around them as dirty and won't touch door handles or shake hands like in the show monk. Characters with military training or PTSD are probably assessing threats everywhere they go, scanning rooms, sizing people up. Even in The Terminator, we see that electronic readout visually in his POV as we sweep across the barn. He processes all the bikers in there, the threat level if the clothes fit them. However you express it, visually, orally, in dialogue, or in the writing on the page, think about how your unique character sees the world differently from everyone else around them and then use that to help tell your story. So another really key thing is that point of view often equals empathy or investment or caring about our characters. Aside from being a narrative device, having a clear POV is so important because it's what allows us to relate to and invest in a character. It's what helps us know it's their story and that they're going through something. They have a goal, they're running into obstacles they have to overcome, and they must change and grow as a person. We kind of need to know as an audience who to root for and why we should care, and point of view really helps with that. And practically, the character we spend the most time with on screen is usually going to be our POV character, or at least one of them. Often we're seeing these characters in the opening scene and the closing scene, and we spend the majority of our screen time with them, uh, if you have a broadcast show, the act out is often going to be about either the main case featuring the main character. So you really need to balance how much time is spent on supporting character stories to ensure enough attention is being paid to the important characters and story arcs. Otherwise, the audience may assume someone is more or less important than they actually are to your story. 
And speaking of audience, there's another really important concept when it comes to perspective and POV that we've actually talked about before, but it's this kind of idea of audience position and where the audience is in terms of knowledge in relation to the characters. So the audience can be behind the characters, they can be with them, you know, alongside them, or they can be ahead of them. So being behind the characters means that they know things that we don't. And this can be a good way to keep the audience intrigued. Perhaps our lead character has a dark secret, and so we watch on to find out exactly what that is. Being with or alongside the characters means we're finding out everything at exactly the same time that they do. It helps engender that empathy and investment in their situation because we feel like we're in it too, and this is our point of view. It's very common for a sort of a first day on the job or a new kid to school type device uh, to use this position to introduce the world and the characters and the story to the audience and the character, the point of view character from scratch. And then lastly, we can be ahead of the characters and know something that they don't. It's rare to stay in this position for very long. It's usually a scene or an episode at the absolute most, if the premise is kind of built around that. But even then, it's usually a contrast between one character not knowing something and the rest of the characters and the audience knowing that. For example, one character may not know that their husband just died and no one can bring themselves to tell them. Or in a tension situation, we know the serial killer is hiding behind the door, but the character walking towards it doesn't. If we get to know more than the characters all the time, it just becomes a little bit boring and predictable. Obviously, none of these positions are fixed, and as writers, we can switch between them whenever we like to create the effect we desire for the audience and the story. Yeah, and the reason why putting your audience too ahead of your main character needs to be used sparingly is because it can be a detriment to the enjoyment of the story. That serial killer hiding behind the door puts you on the edge of your seat specifically because you know they are right there and you want to warn the character not to go through that door. Yet, it could equally be very frustrating if that character has no reason to walk through the door and still does. Uh, And in fact, this is a common problem for horror stories. Why are these characters acting so stupidly? Because we, the audience, know something they do not, and we are frustrated by the character's lack of knowledge. It's kind of the classic dilemma presented by Hitchcock about suspense versus surprise. Two characters talk at a table, then a bomb explodes. The audience is surprised and shocked. Conversely, you can start the scene by showing the bomb and the ticking clock, then going to the conversation between the two characters. We know there's a bomb under the table that can explode any minute. That's suspense and tension. A Quiet Place did this many times, especially with a nail. Uh, I won't spoil too much if you haven't seen the movie, but it did go a little bit over the top in my mind a couple of times by telegraphing too much of that element, almost screaming someone is going to be stepping on that nail at some point in the movie. And for me, that did not really build tension as much as it was only treading water until someone stepped on that nail. And going back to the POV of it all, if you're writing something set, say, in another world or do that whole Stranger in a Strange Land narrative, then having the audience play catch up is very often the way to go. I'll once again bring Farscape and Lost as great examples of pilots which thrust you into a foreign land with little to no explanation. And on the side of flash forwards and flashbacks and non-linear storytelling, which is again another way of putting the audience either ahead or behind the characters, we could go down this rabbit hole forever. And in fact, we kind of did because we already have a whole episode (laughs) on that topic and that's PT70. So check that out if you're interested in non-linear narrative. So here are a couple of the most common problems that we often see with people writing this point of view in their, their TV scripts and their pilots and stories. The first one, and this might sound obvious, but it's not having a point of view. So they're simply telling everything objectively 
through a third-person omniscient POV, uh, leaving us feeling disconnected from any one character in particular. Or perhaps they're jumping around between too many point of views, leaving the audience not knowing whose story it actually is. We need that anchor. And ideally, that anchor should also be the one driving most of the action rather than just standing idly by while things happen around them. Yeah, and that doesn't mean the entire show should be entirely told by a singular perspective. Even a single scene can be imagined from both perspectives of a conversation. Whatever you land on is up to you, but you need to be cognizant that perspectives do exist in stories. The antagonist probably doesn't think she or he is the bad guy, so you need to work on that. Another uh, common problem is the overuse or perhaps lazy use of narrative devices to establish POV, like voiceover, when it becomes a trope like that. Instead of actually putting POV to intelligent use, the writer is taking the easy way out and just has our main character spout some lazy narration that doesn't really add anything other than to show that this is their story. Yeah, and this ties back to what we've been saying this entire episode. If you are going to use specific narrative techniques to put us in the mind of someone else, then actually use those techniques instead of having it as a gimmick or or some cheap tool for exposition. Use them to explore characters or story in a way that is unique to who that person is intrinsically. And the last common problem is doing this thing where you make the bad guys or the supporting characters more interesting and compelling than the hero. Yes, the bad guys get to have more fun, but if you spend a lot of time with them and everyone else, and you don't put the effort into making the protagonist just as compelling and relatable, then we're no longer going to care about them or their story. Yeah, there's a reason why that protagonist is the number one on the call sheet. They're being paid the most, so use them as such. And unless you're making this pure ensemble TV show with each episode rotating POV, then you really need to focus on why your protagonist is your protagonist, or make a spin-off about those other characters instead. Yeah, I think if you get caught up in loving your villains and supporting characters so much, then everything that your protagonist and your main characters do is suddenly in reaction to them, and they're no longer driving the story. Yeah, I think we're both villains in this story, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right, so what are the takeaways for this episode? Number one, understand how POV and perspective are integral to framing a narrative and connecting with your characters. Number two, know how to use, but not overuse, devices like voiceover, unreliable narrator, and Rashomon-style stories to play with POV and audience expectations effectively. And number three, make sure you put that POV into your writing on the page and use it to highlight the uniqueness of your characters and how they see the world. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our episode. But before we go, we'd like to remind you again about our paper tease competition. So if you have teasers that you want feedback on, eight pages or below, send those in to paperteam.co slash teaser. Thanks to all our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 88. And in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 88 transcript. We'd love for you to leave us some reviews, and you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All those reviews and ratings are going to help us find new cool people to listen to the podcast like you, and maybe we'll all be friends and hold hands and skip around rainbows. And you'll be famous once we give you a shout out on the podcast. <laughs> that too. And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Roadmap Writers. This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers, who give screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped more than 40 writers find representation. So you can visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. 
If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we are going to be joined by a very, very special guest, Tom Ruger, showrunner, creator, executive producer of Your Entire Childhood. Shows like Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Tiny Toons, Freakazoid, Batman the Animated Series, and more. You name it. It's going to be an incredible episode to hear from Tom. I'm so excited. Uh, but can you sing the song of all the countries right now? <laughs> no. Maybe next week. <laughs> all right. See you then. See you then.